Welcome back to Charlottesville Soundboard, your source for news, culture, and community issues in Central Virginia. I'm your host, Mary Garner McGee. Soundboard airs every Saturday at 6 a.m. on WTJU 91.1 FM. Soundboard also comes to you as a podcast that belongs to the Virginia Audio Collective. Tune in, subscribe, and find out what's happening in your community. And follow us at our new Twitter account. We're at CVL Soundboard. This week on Soundboard, we talk to Charlottesville Tomorrow about the role public transportation plays in the city's ambitious climate goals. Plus, a conversation about the University of Virginia Press and its role in promoting public intellectualism. Today, we're joined by Charlottesville Tomorrow reporter Charlotte Renee Woods and editor Elliot Robinson. Charlotte, our elections and government expert, has a new beat. Can you tell us about covering climate change for Charlottesville Tomorrow? Well, it is a obviously a global issue, but covering it from a more narrowed down local perspective is being able to track the little incremental things that are helping get to those goals. Um, and a lot of that work ends up tying in with government coverage. So it's a nice little fusion for me. What are some topics you're eager to dig into? Transportation, because it emits a third of the greenhouse gas emissions, especially with the city and county having set these 2030 and then 2050 climate goals. They actually want to reach net zero by 2050. Ambitious. Yes. (laughs) But there's a lot of different ways in different areas you can do that. And transportation, obviously, is a really big part of that. A a greener grid, renewable resources, less reliance on um, natural gas and coal. There's some renewable energy companies based in Charlottesville, like SunTribe Solar, Segura Solar, um, Apex Clean Energy, which does a bit of solar, but also does mostly like wind turbines. So in your first climate-related article of the new year, you write about Charlottesville area transit bus services, which are often called the CAT. How is transit related to other equity issues in the city, like housing, food justice, healthcare needs? So if you are in a family where you have no car or say your family can only afford one car and you're not the person who gets to use it, you know, you need to rely on public transportation to get to work, to get to school, to get to the hospital, to get to the grocery store. And if the service doesn't extend to where you are, you end up walking very far or you end up spending a very long time taking a roundabout route to get to where you need to go. Yeah, and if you have a lower income and you're outside of an area where there is bus service and you're relying on the car that if something happens to it, you have no way to get to work and that might lead to you losing your job. So it just becomes a... Domino effect. Yeah, domino effect. Yeah, and right now there are some people who take the bus because they can and they want to, and then there are people who take it because they have to. And if over time... As regional transit partnership collaborates and comes up with plans together and kind of streamlines routes, adds new routes, whatever other changes they make, and think regionally between the city, the county, the university, and then surrounding counties, it would incentivize more people to take the bus because they want to. Who's responsible for transportation planning in Charlottesville and Albemarle? Right now, there is a new, relatively new director of Charlottesville Area Transit, Garland Williams. So he's come in sort of over the summer. And he has previous experience in uh, Greater Richmond Transit Company in Richmond. Their big monumental thing they did in the last two or three years was the Pulse Rapid Transit. Uh, They created a bus lane on Broad Street, which is the street that encompasses the most parts of Richmond. And that bus is very streamlined and public transportation ridership has gone up there. And then we have the regional transit partnership here that has different stakeholders in the region. So obviously Garland sits in on, on it for CAT. 
There are city council and board of supervisor appointees who serve as the liaisons to their respective governing bodies. You've got Jaunts, you've got UVA was recently officially made a partner. They've been there giving suggestions all along, but now they can actually take votes. And I think there's other entities as well. Also on the regional transit partnership is the Thomas Jefferson Planning District Commission, which they have their hand in a lot, like all things planning, to include transportation for this region of the state. So they're really important voices to be part of that. Why is it important for the Charlottesville-Albemarle area to have a robust public transit system? The big one is climate, especially these climate goals. As I said earlier, transportation is one of the biggest emissions that we have. Even just more people taking a bus, even if it's not an electric bus, it's already making an impact. But if those buses can gradually transition to renewable, running on renewable resources, and if over time, if those buses can run a bit more effectively and encourage more people to take it, it just gets better and better and the area can start to reach its goals. And yes, our area, quote unquote, has sprawl, but compared to a lot of areas, we are compact enough that people really shouldn't have to take their personal vehicles to get to a lot of destinations. I've looked at another study that said on average, the person only needs to go about two and a half miles between their two destinations in the Charlottesville and Arbor area. So if we had a more robust bus system and better pedestrian and bike access, we could get a lot of cars off the road that will really aid in making the area less congested. And the first thing that comes to mind for me is that around UVA with the medical center, West Main Street, University Avenue, Jefferson Park Avenue are usually just completely clogged. And if a lot of those workers could get there without having to take their personal vehicles, that could empty those roads out a bit. Faster EMS response times. Most people probably recognize in a general sense that it's environmentally better to take public transit than rely on a personal vehicle. What are some of the specific or lesser known benefits to using public transit? Mm, it, it could have like a psychological mental benefit, at least from this is anecdotal. I would probably need to do a whole other follow-up article t- talking to psychologists about this. But when I lived in New York, you know, sometimes you, you come home, you're at the end of a work, long work day. You have to drive. Some people in traffic drive you nuts and make you mad. And when you're taking public transportation, that gives you a moment to zone out, listen to your music, read a book, just collect your thoughts or reflect on your day. And it can be really meditative. The article also mentioned things like wear and tear on the road. Yeah, there's that whole, you know, local government economical benefit because if there's less amounts of cars always driving on the roads, you're not wearing them down as much. You know, your local government doesn't have to constantly fix potholes or repave roads. Is CAT an affordable option compared to driving? I think it would be interesting to do an article where I analyze a person's gas bills for per month or per week. And also by car type, because some cars guzzle more gas than others. Like maybe the five most popular cars in Charlottesville, what's your gas money like? How much miles are you traveling compared to how much is bus fare and how often would you take the bus? How much is bus fare? Cash fare is 75 cents for a one-way trip. Day passes are available on cat buses and provide unlimited service on a single calendar day for 150 That is so affordable. What is it monthly? Three day, four fifty, seven day, uh, ten fifty, thirty day, twenty bucks. Looking at those fares for the thirty day pass, for example, if I stay in the Charlottesville Auburn Mall area and I don't visit friends or family outside of the state, I fill up my gas tank about once a month and it's definitely more than the twenty dollars for a monthly pass here. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that doesn't even include all of the other costs associated with relying on a car to get to work like Parking, paying for repairs, making your car payments, paying for insurance. 
We like our personal occupancy vehicles, but they're definitely not an affordable option for a lot of people. Are there any financial assistance options? So you have reduced fare, which is 50% off if you are 65 years or older, have a qualifying disability, are an Albemarle County employee, or have a Medicare card. You also have, in the city of Charlottesville, you have free rides if you have your Charlottesville City ID as you're an employee. You have free rides if you're a youth, so basically 13 to 17 years old. And then also, if you are a UVA student or employee, you present your ID. You can ride for free. What is CATS ridership like? It's gone down technically Mm -hmm. in the last year or last couple of years, according to the recent report that was delivered to city council on December 16th. Why do they think that is? Part of the report attributed it to more people taking bikes and the um, electric scooters. Mm. And then as we know, there's also the culture of always take your car. I've heard from various people who take the routes that they could be more efficient. The Charlottesville Area Transit or other transit authorities in the region could figure out, well, do we need to just have better streamlined existing routes and make them a little bit more efficient? Or do we need more frequency in the routes? Because um, sometimes if you're taking a bus from point A to get to point B, which is a little closer than you would think, but still too far to walk. Sometimes the bus, you have to ride it this giant wide loop way far out past what you actually need to get to where you need to go. Mm -hmm. Not the biggest inconvenience in the world, but if you do have a very rigid, strict time schedule for work or you need to get to the doctor quickly, or if you need to go grocery shopping and there's no grocery store in your neighborhood, it could take you all day or half a day to just to get your grocery shopping. And what if you have perishables that could spoil in route? There's also like the whole urban planning and land use and infrastructure component as well, because when you have certain bus stops that don't have a sidewalk to get to them or you have to be a pedestrian crossing a very dangerous automobile thoroughfare that you could get hit because you need to be on the other side of the road to get to the right bus that you need. That's a bit of a limitation. There's also the fact that to make the buses more efficient for the better routes would need more dense pockets. So if you have this continued urban sprawl forever and ever, like that makes more longer bus routes versus the buses going more often to the areas where they can service the most people. Do you think people in Charlottesville have a stigma against riding the buses? Personally, I think that's just a stigma throughout America that all the people feel that only the poor people take the bus. I can afford a car, so why would I take the bus? And that's just some, a mentality we have to get out of. How accessible are the cat buses? What are some of the opportunities to make our whole transit system more accessible to people of all abilities? I think the biggest obstacle is that some of the bus stops aren't in optimal positions because our sidewalk infrastructure isn't great in some places. So you have some stops that are just on the side of the road. It's either just a curb or just a gravel shoulder. And depending on what your abilities are, that is not the ideal place to be trying to board a bus. Your article talks about the fact that as housing costs continue to rise in the city, people are starting to move farther and farther out. This impacts multiple levels of income. There are certain places where your housing vouchers aren't accepted. So if you are lower income and you have housing vouchers, you have to go further and further out to find a place to live. Or say you were making enough money that you were were okay in your apartment downtown, but then rent is going up or you were looking to be a homeowner and Prices are skyrocketing, so you're going to start to look further and further out. And that means if you have a car and you don't take public transportation, that's more personal occupancy vehicles driving in. If you do rely on public transportation and it doesn't extend to where you are, as Elliot was saying, how are you going to get to work? (laughs) 
Are there any plans to expand coverage to better serve commuters? As of right now, I think there's a lot of conversations and planning that will take place over the next few weeks and months. There's been some turnover in local government. I'm going to be going to every single RTUP meeting. Right now, when I was speaking at least with Garland Williams from CAT, he was basically saying, I can't give anything concrete right now, but I, I need to continue talking to the regions and hear what they want and what they need. So I think some of this will come from residents advocating for themselves, reaching out to their boards of supervisors, to their city councilors, and then the city councilors communicating to the various stakeholders and agencies and planning people on, hey, this is where we need to get on the same page on various things. Are there any creative transit solutions in other cities that could serve as a model here? We had mentioned the uh, Pulse bus system in Richmond that has a dedicated bus lane. There are some ideas to put uh, dedicated bus lanes in on Route 29 with the Rio Road overpass, for example. There is space that they could put in a bus stop there. There's this anticipation that something might happen, and I think having some sort of rapid transit up Route 29 would serve a lot of purposes because we have Hollymead Town Center and the surrounding Forest Lakes neighborhood, the airport, and if someone could live downtown or live farther down Fifth Street and be able to take mass transit to the airport or to shop at Hollywood Town Center, that would be a huge help or the people who live farther out. For example, they live in green because things are cheaper that they can go to like a park and ride lot and then take mass transit the rest of the way into downtown that would serve some of the solution of congestion in the area. Yeah, I think about how long it could sometimes take in a car to get up and down Route 29 and think about how much it would change the conversation if if there was a dedicated bus lane and it was actually faster Mm -hmm. to take a bus than to drive your own car. Also, I remember during the elections when I was talking to the County Board of Supervisors candidates, that's actually something that popped up a couple times was what Elliot mentioned about parking rides in the further reaches of the county and surrounding counties to be able to drive your car a little bit or walk a little bit depending on how close you are and then... Mass transit the rest of the way. Do you have any tips for people who might want to incorporate buses into their regular transportation routines? Talk to Sean Tubbs. (laughs) (laughs) Sean Tubbs, former Charlottesville Tomorrow reporter. And now he's with the Piedmont Environmental Council. So you see him showing up at council and supervisor meetings to advocate for things. He worked out his own system. And as I used him sort of as like an anecdotal lead into the article, he was telling me about how it took him some trial and error. And his boss was very understanding. Not everyone has a boss that would understand that way. But trying to figure out if you really are gung-ho about taking it right now, how you can make it serve you best. Yeah, and to piggyback on what Charlotte said, that if you have, like, free time, if you're just, like, trying to think, what am I going to do today? It's like, one idea could be, well, I should see if I can get to downtown mall or to Fashion Square or to Stonefield without taking my car. And if you have kids, that could be a kind of an adventure for them to help you all, like, try out the bus system. I mean, it's one of those things where it's like, well, try it. You might like it. So, switching gears just a little bit, you recently made a trip to Richmond for the opening day of the General Assembly. First question, how did you get there? I did carpool. I was in a a personal occupancy vehicle, but I was not alone, so. That's another thing that's on our wish list, some sort of mass transit between Charlottesville and Richmond. Like, we're so close that there should be a bus or a train that comes back and forth in a relatively... uh, rapid fashion, not just once a day. It could be several times a day. Mm -hmm. And the governor's proposed expanding rail networks throughout the state. One of the options would be a train that goes from Charlottesville to Richmond by way of 
Doswell, so hopefully there would be a King's Dominion stop on the way there. <laughs> yeah, there's um, a lot of, like, transportation is just really a great beat to have, like, a sub-beat within climate to have going into 2020 because there's a lot of things that are going to be happening this year, so just getting to track them all is going to be really fun. All right, let's end this segment like we do every week by asking the folks at Charlottesville tomorrow, what's on your calendar this week? Elliot is literally pulling his calendar out. <laughs> yes, next week we're having the next listing conversation that Charlottesville Tomorrow is holding. Um, it will start at 6 p.m. It'll be at First Baptist Church on West Main Street. Our land use reporter, Emily Hayes, will also be in attendance. We'll be talking a bit about how the landscape of the Charlottesville area has been changing with development, especially in the past few years. Once again, our next listing conversation, we're trying to get feedback from our readers to see exactly what you would like us to cover, what you want us to keep doing, what you want us to start doing, what you probably want us to stop doing. Just any and all feedback. Just uh, come to First Baptist Church on West Main Street at 6 p.m. on Monday. I just have a lot of various articles in the government climate beat that have been in the process or on the back burner right now. And since 2020's start, I've just been churning things out. And uh, yeah, so I'm just picking which ones are most time sensitive and need to come out sooner. And we'll be turning those out. See, that's less of an exciting on your calendar. So you can just cut mine. <laughs> no, I'm not going to cut it. <laughs> a little peek behind the curtain. <laughs> oh, my goodness. All right. Well, thank you all so much for coming. You're welcome. Thank yeah, you for thanks. having us. Charlotte Renee Woods is a reporter for Charlottesville Tomorrow. Elliot Robinson is the editor. You're listening to Soundboard here on WTJU 91.1 FM and the Virginia Audio Collective. WTJU and the Virginia Audio Collective are both a service of the University of Virginia. However, opinions expressed on this show are not the positions of the University of Virginia. WTJU is supported by the Southern Environmental Law Center celebrating 30 years of protecting the South's environment and the people who depend on it for health and well-being. Power of the Law, Southern Environmental Law Center. One of our goals at the University of Virginia Press is to make our authors public intellectuals, that they're not just speaking to a small esoteric group of colleagues, but in fact speaking on uh, controversial topics with sort of reasoned, thoughtful responses. That was Eric Brandt. He's the editor-in-chief of the University of Virginia Press. The UVA Press has just appointed architecture professor Suzanne Muma to be its new director. The two of them came to the studio to talk about the role of our local university press in today's media and political climate. I'm continually surprised, Suzanne, to meet faculty, alumni, and students who apparently have no awareness that the University of Virginia has a publishing house. Can you tell us a little bit about the press? We are a publishing arm of scholarly publications and general interest books. Our current list is 75 to 100 titles per year. In looking back over the history of the press from uh, 1963 forward, the original goal of the press list was 25 books a year. I think latest calculation was about 1,500 books in print on the back list. And as you say, our, our new list every year is growing. Part of our mission is research, obviously through the publication arm, but also service to the Commonwealth. And to give you an idea, I mean, we, we have done work on the Shenandoah Valley. We have done a book on Native Americans in Virginia, a marvelous book done recently on Oliver Hill and Spotsworth 
Robinson's work, we face the dawn on dismantling Jim Crow in Virginia. There is a whole part of our list that addresses issues that are of concern, interest, and inspiration to the citizens of the Commonwealth of Virginia. And we want to continue to highlight those books and make those available, not only to uh, general readership, but classrooms and others who could greatly benefit from the the work of our authors. How long has the press been in, in operation? We began in 1963, and then we became a different entity. We were called the University Press of Virginia at that time. But in 2002, we became the University of Virginia Press uh, with a closer affiliation with the university. But you still represent all the universities in the state? Absolutely, Hmm. absolutely, and have representatives on our board from uh, multiple institutions. That's great. Let's get into the books. What sort of books does the University Press publish? We publish both scholarly and general interest books, but also regional and uh, local books of interest. American history, African-American studies, Southern history, literature, eco-criticism, architecture, regional books, but also books that you might use in your everyday life. I know after the the Wright rally was held in Charlottesville and all the conflict that resulted, one of the producers here at WTJU asked me, what is the press going to do in response? And the station is noted for its community outreach. It was a great question. I went back to our director at the time, Mark Saunders, and two books evolved out of that. One by a New York Times reporter who's local, Haas Spencer, which is sort of a journalistic account of those days, Summer of Hate, Charlottesville, USA. And the other was a more academic collection by Lewis Nelson and Claudrina Harold, both professors at UVA called Charlottesville 2017, The Legacy of Race and Inquiry. As its new director, do you have any plans to grow the list in in any new ways? Well, I think we do. I think uh, I have kind of three general goals which will involve the list. Let me say first that uh, university presses are about knowledge creation and knowledge dissemination. So we are a research arm and service arm of the university. But my three goals are this, uh, which relate to the list. Innovation, and what does that mean? It certainly means new avenues for readership, but more than that, it means building on what we have already on our list and how we can create different avenues and different readership through that list. The second goal is impact. That means tearing down walls and barriers, not only for books, but for us as a civil society. And the third is influence. And what does that mean for a press? In my view, it means challenging and facilitating new conversations that allow people to think and act in new and different ways, learning from others. So those are the goals. I suspect that we, under Eric's leadership, will be acquiring new books, new thinking, new avenues to achieve those three goals. How is the press adapted to the digital age? I'm going to turn and ask you to to join in, please. We launched the Rotunda series that has been quite successful. Our uh, digital platform, Rotunda, created a platform that is part of it is open access, but part of it we charge libraries to make available to their users. We are publishing papers not only of uh, early founders, but also presidents down through the line. 
So that's one of the, the major project, but also ebooks across our list are becoming more and more popular. Yeah, the uh, Pew Research Center recently did a survey which showed the number of readers, those people who've read an entire book in the last 12 months, has dipped slightly. The average hours per day that people spend reading, according to the U.S. Bureau of Labor and Statistics, is less than what we spend at the gym. But there's much more things competing for our attention, social media, online stuff. So I think it's important that not only the press and publishing accommodate that, that when ebooks first came out, it was about the same time as the recession. So publishers had real challenges at that time because there was less money for books and they didn't have a business plan for ebooks. So there was a lot of competition there and anxiety about what the future of publishing would be. But in fact, ebook use has leveled off for general trade books about 20%, for scholarly books more like 12 to 15%. And so I don't think traditional books, paper, printing, and binding are going away. And that's good news for publishers and uh, I think good news for all of us. Former President Clinton recently in a speech told about the need for book length arguments and that you can't reduce those to a tweet or an article. And that was reassuring to me as an editor that there's still a, a desire and need for thoughtful book length arguments to make cases what ways does the press partner with other organizations at UVA or elsewhere? A couple come to mind. One is our partnership with the Carter Woodson Center Institute series on black studies. We released and Eric was uh, hosted a wonderful event uh, on a new book we, we published on the writings of Toni Morrison in partnership with the Carter Woodson Center. How is the press funded? Do scholars have to pay for their books or do students pay for the press? How does that work? Uh, it's an independent auxiliary enterprise of the university that is supported by the sales of both our electronic imprints, uh, Rotunda, and the e-books, as well as the sale of our hardcover books. We are fortunate to have a small endowment that uh, helps us um, provide some additional support to the press, but we are an independent organization. We, we, we also get a small amount of funding from the university, our hosted institution. Uh, there are a lot of challenges to publishing. We've talked book publishing. We've talked about a few of them. How do you see, what's your vision for moving the press forward, addressing these challenges and capitalizing on new opportunities? Uh, university presses are challenged as are trade presses to be able to be financially sustainable. That's the question. I think the bigger challenge, actually, money is always a challenge, the bigger challenge is for us to continue to do the kind of intellectual work that is important to the long-term health of our democracy. And that requires uh, a level of thinking and consideration that goes beyond money. So money is one that's that's affected us. Ebooks, the lack of reading, as as you said earlier, Eric certainly figures into it. I want to put a book in the hand of all those people that are texting someone that I see walking around the lawn. But but the bigger issue for us is the impact issue. I think so. We certainly need uh, additional support in order to to financial support. That's part of the issue. But I think the big issue, great universities have great presses. 
So I think the, the university presses are the embodiment of what we think liberal arts universities, research universities are all about, and how we engage with not only our local university but the larger world in exploring ideas is, is both the opportunity and the challenge for all presses going forward. I want to say just a word about the University of Virginia press staff. Collectively, there are decades of experience from trade presses and university presses among this band of 20 individuals. And as the new director, I cannot tell you the honor and privilege it is to work alongside this caliber of people who are dedicated not only to scholarship and getting the books out the door, but this larger intellectual public scholarship mission that we have. The university is very, very lucky to have the university press on its masthead. Thanks so much. I've been speaking with Suzanne Muma, Associate Professor of Urban and Environmental Design and the new director of the University of Virginia Press. Thanks, Suzanne, for joining us this morning at WTJU. does it for this week's edition of Soundboard, your source for news, culture, and community issues in Central Virginia. Hope you learned something new this week. If you did, please subscribe and share Soundboard with your friends. My name's Mary Garner McGee. Our theme music is Kyoja Beat by Myrna Lasco and Jay Pun. This is Soundboard. Catch us at seavelsoundboard.org.